This week on the show, we have OpenZFS 2.1 features covering a little bit what they provide. FreeBSD TCP performance system controls article on Clara Systems website. IPFS on OpenBSD, interesting network you can run this way. Tips for running an online conference by Dan Langeau, a fanless OpenBSD laptop setup, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 414, running online conferences, recorded on the 28th of July 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome, everyone. We are back with another episode of BSD Now. And yeah, I thought we should start right away with the headlines because... Yeah, it is what it is. OpenZFS 2.1 is out. Yeah, so the, the first story we have in the headlines today is uh, an Ars Technica article about OpenZFS 2.1. Uh, and it is uh, a highlight on a brand new feature, DRAID VDEVs. Uh, and this is uh, an article by Jim Salter. Uh, Jim starts, uh, Friday afternoon, the OpenZFS project released version 2.1.0 of the perennial favorite, It's Complicated But Worth It file system. The new release is compatible with FreeBSD 12.2 release and up, and Linux kernels 3.10 to 5.13. That's a that's a big span of kernels. Mm. Uh, this release offers several several general performance improvements as well as uh, entirely new features, mostly targeting enterprise and other extremely advanced use cases. Today, we're going to focus on arguably the biggest feature OpenZFS 2.1.0 adds: the DRAID VDEV topology. DRAID has been under active development since at least 2015 and reached beta, beta status when merged into OpenZFS Master in November 2020. Since then, it has been heavily tested in several major OpenZFS deployment development shops, meaning that today's release is new to production status, but not new as in untested. So what is <laughs> distributed RAID? Uh, so overview of DRAID. If you already thought ZFS topology was complex topic, get ready to have your mind blown. And, and as a reader of this article, I was very confused and had to ask for help. Uh, distributed RAID is an entirely new VDEV topology we first encountered in a presentation at the 2016 OpenZFS Dev Summit. When creating a DRAID VDEV, the admin specifies a number of data, parity, and hot spare sectors per stripe. These numbers are independent of the number of actual disks in the VDEV, we can see this in action in the following example. And so there's an example in the article with uh, 11 drives, helpfully named uh, 0 to A, uh, which I, I didn't think helped my understanding. Um, in the example, they have 11 disks, uh, WWN0 through WWNA. Uh, we create a single VDEV RAID with two parity devices, four data devices, and one spare device per stripe. In condensed jargon, a DRAID 241. Even though we have 11 total disks in the DRAID 241, only six are used in each data stripe and one in each physical stripe. In a world of perfect vacuums, frank machineless surfaces, and spherical chickens, the on-disk layer of DRAID 241 would look something like, and there's a diagram. Uh, and the diagram shows uh, uh, basically a stripe going uh, uh, diagonally um, across all of the drives, and it's showing uh, different stripes of different features, uh, different storage across the 11 disks. 
effectively, D-Raid is taking the concept of diagonal parity raid one step farther. The first parity raid topology that wasn't RAID 5, it wasn't, wasn't RAID 5, it was RAID 3, in which parity was on a fixed drive rather than being distributed throughout the array. RAID 5 did away with the fixed parity drive and distributed parity throughout all of the array's disks instead, which offered significantly faster random write operations than conceptually simpler RAID 3, since it didn't bottleneck every write on a fixed parity drive. DRAID takes this concept, distributing the parity across all disks rather than lumping it into one or two fixed disks and extends it to spares. If one, if a disk fails in a DRAID VDEV, the parity and data sectors which lived on the dead disk are copied to the reserved spare sectors for each affected stripe. And Jim continues with some examples and he emphasized that they're simplified examples. And I, I, I really actually struggled to understand this. And so I, I asked for help in an IRC channel today and Alan helpfully came back and he, he gave a summary that well, while Jim is using an example of 11 drives here, it's more, it's probably easier to understand with 100 drives. And so Alan's example was in the past, you might have um, split these up into logically 10 different sections, each with 10 drives with one for parity. Uh, and when you came to resilver, what you would end up with bottlenecking uh, when you're trying to pull data back onto this one parity drive. And instead with the D-RAID, you just throw them in, you get a big virtual pool. And when you are resilvering, you get a much faster recover operation because you're now pooling from 99 drives rather than nine drives. Uh, and I'm sure that there is a lot of nuance here that I've not gotten. Uh, and we'd love to hear more questions about this. It seems like a really cool feature and it's, it's great to see. Um, it's really, really nice to see FreeBSD being the first listed operating system for support in this article. It's, it's good to see. Yeah, so they have some graphs to, to show performance and it seems like it really is much uh, faster in the 90 disk pool, like everyone else has a 90 disk pool. Um, the resilvering time is much less than a standard uh, fixed um, spare or fixed um, the, uh, parity, parity. Like a yeah. fixed parity takes much longer than the uh, new D rate. And I think there's a trade-off... Um in uh, resilience of the entire setup, but this is balanced out by being much faster to recover. And I think it balances out because I understand that when you have a failure scenario, you're now stressing all of the other drives quite a lot and they're now questionable drives. And so this allows you to recover faster so that if there's gonna be a cascading failure, it's narrowed the amount of time that can happen. In. And so it's, it's, it's great. And it's really, really nice to see new features coming through. I can't mm -hmm. wait to see what people will build with this. Yeah, this seems like a, a feature built for like big disk arrays and like companies would use this more, I guess. Although uh, it's not forbidden to <laughs> use it at home. Um, but it's definitely um, fixing some of the problems that um, traditional RAID Z has, although that's already an improvement over classical RAID 5. Um, so... ZFS keeps improving. And that's the major part of the ZFS uh, version upgrade. So that brings in the D-Rate feature. Uh, we didn't get anything more about the other things uh, that the update contained, but I guess it's uh, the usual bug fixes and uh, polishing under the hood. And maybe they have uh, more articles to come that we've not got yet. That could well be, yeah, that future uh, BSD <laughs> nows will uh, focus on those. Um, ah, here are the list at the beginning. Uh, there's a link to the release notes. So yeah, DRAID is the major new feature. Another one is the compatibility property, which lets administrators specify a set of features which should be enabled on the pool. 
and is a fine-grained control to make it easy to create portable pools and maintain pool compatibility between ZFS versions across platforms. Oh, they have InfluxDB support now to collect pool statistics uh, with the ZPool InfluxDB command. Oh, okay, so you can put that into your time series database for plotting and analysis. Okay, that, that should be interesting. And there's some uh, under the hood, yeah, changes to zpool and zfs commands because these are the only two commands <laughs> that people are working with, uh, unless they are into zdb. Um, yeah, I guess people can read the uh, release notes themselves. But um, yeah, also has documentation updates so that people can also read uh, about these new features and use them properly. And, and the uh, compatible releases starting from twelve point two. Uh, that means it's landing in FreeBSD current now. Yeah, so people can start testing it. Um, maybe, although it's officially released, um, I wouldn't uh, put my most important data on it yet. But yeah, I trust the developers that they've tested it thoroughly and uh, found all the ugly bugs that would cause uh, disasters. So I, I, I'm not worried about ZFS in this regard. Okay, that's for this article. And the next one is from Tom, but he thought I should read that because <laughs> it's much more interesting this way. Uh, on Clara Systems blog, FreeBSD TCP performance system controls. And that goes uh, as in the intro parts, FreeBSD has a very mature and high performance network stack, which we uh, have covered multiple times. And uh, that has evolved over the lifetime of the internet. While new protocols are constantly being developed, the venerable transmission control protocol aka TCP, still amounts for or accounts for most global traffic. As advancements to network protocols and congestion control algorithms are developed, they are frequently implemented for and merged into the FreeBSD kernel. In many cases, they are left off by default at first and are configurable via syscontrol options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the hidden things uh, under the hood that, oh, FreeBSD is auto-tuning, it will already um, do the right thing. But uh, some people might want to tweak here and there a little bit. So new features being introduced through optional controls has upsides and downsides. An upside of optional controls is that if a change is detrimental to a certain traffic profile, it's easy to revert back to the previous behavior. It has the downside of adding a lot of options which can be difficult to understand the costs and benefit of enabling unless you're experienced with the internal workings of TCP. So these sysctl options, or syscontrol, syscuddle, however people pronounce that, they carry online documentation that can be exposed to the D flag. So sysctl-d, and then the name of the sysctl. That gives you a bit of a descriptive text, if there is a text. Um, most of those have. But uh, even those explanations can be cryptic. The excellent uh, Calomel.org website, they have a FreeBSD network tuning and performance guide. Uh, that has a good example. SysControlConf file explains many of the TCP and network stack sysctls, and they're also specific to FreeBSD versions. So they test between major versions and minor versions and make sure that um, their current recommendations are still the ones uh, that are making the impact. Uh, even with this, it can be hard to tell if enabling an option is offering a real benefit onto your traffic, and sometimes it can be hard to tell if the option is having any effect at all. Here we look at some of the sysctl options available in the latest version of FreeBSD and show the impact they have on traffic when viewed with Wireshark. So here's a section about initial window. So the initial window, IW, is the value that the congestion window is set to when a new TCP connection is created. The size of the initial window governs how many packets we can send in the first round trip time of the connection where data is sent and it sets the start point for growing our estimate of the network's capacity. 
If our data transfer is transactional at the start, or if our transfer is small enough, a larger initial window can greatly improve performance by reducing the transfer time. The TCP IW has changed over time. The IETF currently recommends an uh, initial window of 10 segments, where it was previously three. Well, the networks were a bit slower back then. Large initial windows have been tested in literature and found to offer performance benefits, which is why the IETF's recommendation is considered to be a little conservative. Okay. Yeah, that uh, ensures um, broadest uh, compatibility, I guess, no matter what networks uh, you have. Reno-based TCP congestion control algorithms follow a pattern of exponential increase during their slow start phase. And if you plot two TCP connections in Wireshark, you can see that with a larger initial window, the exponential curve is steeper for uh, IW40 versus IW10. Ah, yes, that's that's cool. That's a nice comparison chart. That shows really the, the impact of the, of the change. And Tom gives us here the uh, information how to implement those, like setting those to CTLs and which are the ones we need. And here he has an example to set it to 10. Uh, yeah, these are the 10 segments. Okay, next up, he shows a little shell script um, that uh, ah, per, tries it out with different sizes and uh, runs iperf each time in a for loop to see what kind of um, you know, performance increase or decrease you will experience. And then you can look at the plot using uh, Ministat. That's in the, is that in ports or is that in the base system? That's in the base system. Oh, even better. Yeah, Paul Henningkamp, that's, that's his tool. And uh, yeah, here you can see the uh, plot for it and the you know confidence and the usual median, max, average standard deviation values. Okay, so here you see at 65K, increasing the initial window from the old default of three to 10 offers a 6% improvement. The time to transfer decreases, less time is better. For each of these apart from uh, the initial window is 40. With an IW of 40, we are hitting bottleneck at the upstream link where the test was run from. Okay, and then we have another test with larger amounts of data and another mini stat to plot that. And seems like, oh yeah, values for the initial window up to 100 segments have been tested and are used in production. However, before widely deploying any change like this, it's important to evaluate its side effects on other traffic. If you change this value, it's worth exploring loss on TCP flows across the system to see if you're impacting your own traffic to other hosts negatively. Yeah, I think it's if you change one knob here, then you also need to change other knobs on the other uh, bits of the TCP stack. I'm not sure if a single change will. So, sometimes, I mean, the important thing is to understand that uh, if you're trying to improve performance, you need to have a good idea of what the performance is before and after. It's really easy to... Uh, read through like Calomel's uh, performance tuning advice and go, oh yeah, cool. There's all these things I can change, but what's hmm. the right answer? And yeah. there's very rarely a right answer. Should uh, you change those? Yeah. The, the, the low lying stuff that is always wrong, we, we do fix quite quickly. It's when you have like workload specific stuff you need to tune is, is different. Yeah. Uh, and so like a bigger initial window is really good if you have um, like a CDN front end and you're dealing with small content because it allows you to just get rid of the stuff as a CDN operator, just get rid of the stuff. Cause that's, you want to do as many of these as possible a second. Uh, but it might, might be problematic for other networks uh, and it doesn't help if you've got large things to move. Yeah. It doesn't help as yeah. much. And so the default generic kernel tries to have a little bit more conservative values to ensure the broadest compatibility, whatever network uh, FreeBSD runs on at, in this installation. Of course you can tune afterwards. 
then there's segment uh, offloading, TSO, TCP segment offloading. Uh, that's the one that I have to turn off in my network to actually get a link at all. But you mentioned this here. Um, it's a mechanism to, that reduces the number of transfers that need to be made between a network stack and a network card when sending packets. And uh, one sign that TCP, uh, TCP, TSO is being used is the presence of TCP segments larger than the network interface MTU, maximum transfer unit. TCO, uh, TSO segments can be very confusing. The first time you see them in a packet capture, they look like impossible packets. But if you're investigating large bursts of packet loss or uh, connectivity drops between hosts, TSO might be the culprit. Uh, TSO is great for exposing implementation issues with switches. Yeah, I guess we have that at work. Um, DPI firewalls and other boxes in a slightly odd custom TCP stacks. Yeah, and you can uh, get if config, and for each individual adapter, it shows the support of TSO. TS, there's TSO4 and TSO6 for uh, IPv4 and IPv6, respectively, and can be turned off with the uh, if config uh, interface name, then minus TSO4 to disable TSO4 or TSO6. Okay, then there's a section on TCP buffer tuning. Uh, let's see, just the, the beginning of that. TCP receive window indicates how many bytes the receiving host is able to buffer and reassemble at any one time. It's directly linked to the size of the socket buffers on the host. If your link has a high BDP, the size of the socket buffers might be too small to accommodate the number of packets that can be sent at once. These packets are considered in flight. Ah, and the transfer will become limited by the size of the buffer. In these situations, TCP on FreeBSD will auto-tune the sockets, the socket buffers, increasing their size. The default buffer sizes are acceptable for many links on the internet, but if you have particularly high bandwidths or very high delays, then you might experience uh, RW and D throttling. Yeah, the receive window needs to uh, adapt to that. Okay. The algorithm that tunes these buffers runs at multiple of the round trip time of the connection. If the link has a lot of latency, the connection will be throttled by the receive window size, a fixed step of traffic being released each round trip time, allowing the connection to grow uh, in throughput very slowly. And there's, ah, yes, there's a nice graphs here. If you click the uh, link in our show notes, you can see how it really is like a, uh, a stare until it finds the right value and then sticks with that. That's really cool to see how it tunes itself this way. And also the SysCTLs for those are shown and what kind of values are uh, useful to start with. And again, tuning is also, um, oh, is the performance actually uh, visible by the user or experienceable, or is it just showing up in the um, in your graphing tool or in your measurement? That's the yeah. interesting thing. Is it really, can, <laughs> can you really feel a difference or is it just, yeah, it's better, but the users are still experiencing slowdowns. <laughs> yeah, and this is why... Um... Like uh, streaming video providers, they they have like machine metrics. They're like, well, we move this many bits per second, but they also have uh, user perceived metrics. They try and guess like if the video is good somehow, uh, because sometimes you can tune this stuff forever and it won't make a difference to anyone. Yeah, it's it's especially difficult if you have such a large number of users coming from different networks, coming from different areas, different delays, TCP, uh, taking many hops to get there. So yeah, it's difficult to tune for one side only and the other ones are, hey, you, it worked last, uh, last week so well, why is it slower now for me? Yeah, this was, yeah. A, this was a fun article to write and um, it actually came from uh, a tweet where somebody asked for some specific examples of like, what is the stuff you can change and, and when will it help? And the, mm -hmm. 
and, and the hard part is always figuring out if things will help you because uh, they might not always yeah. help you and i like how you put it together with um not just hey change it to this value and it will be better but you show why and the the measurements be behind it and how you can show it that it changes or that it I, actually is better i i wish i had the confidence to give people advice do this thing and it will just be better <laughs> <laughs> well but probably that's why the the stack is now uh, auto-tuning in many ways so it it can adapt in to the environment that it's in and for some environments it will have different values yeah i mean it, it's set up for for really reasonable defaults um because like sensible defaults are good uh, but you do hit cases where you have problems. So if your latency gets really high, you can have big slowdowns. Uh, mm. I think the FreeBSD package mirrors were getting this if you're in Australia or were. like there, People were complaining about slow connectivity to package mirrors, and I think it was just a latency. Uh, but we were never able to figure this out. Um, yeah, and you just sometimes you sometimes you, you the, the general case is okay, uh, but sometimes you need a specific case where where things would be slightly different. I think when the PS4 was released, there was an issue with really slow downloads because it was using, uh, it had a local proxy for its TCP, uh, which meant the window never really grew. And so it looked like a very low latency connection, but it was actually a internet latency connection. And so the downloads were, were artificially capped in how the windows grew because of this weird juggling. And somebody figured it out by just like playing with stuff on the wire and got it to go better. Uh, so these, these things happen. Yeah, huh? yeah, I see where the um, the charm comes from in finding these out and measuring them. Very nice. Okay, let's move into our news roundup this week. We have another networking topic: IPFS on OpenBSD. Okay, um, this is an article by uh, Celine, and Celine is an OpenBSD developer. Um, and she writes, IPFS is a distributed storage network protocol that comes with a public network. Anyone can run a peer and access content from IPFS and then relay the content while it's in your cache. Gateways are websites used to allow accessing content of IPSS through HTTP. There are several public gateways allowing to get data from IPFS without a peer. Every published content has a unique CID to identify it. We usually add a slash IPFS slash to it, like in uh, slash IPFS slash QMRVD1V, and it goes on for a while. Uh, the CID is unique, and if someone adds the same file from another peer, they will get the same hash as you. Uh, and so I think this means that the IPFS network is hashing all of the content, um, and then you store stuff to your machine uh, when you when you view or download it. Um, and because the files are hashed, uh, if somebody has a file, it then gets added redundantly to the store, so it gets more distributed over time. Um, and Celine continues, if you add a whole directory in IPFS, the top directory hash will depend on the hash of its content. This means if you want to share a directory like a blog, you'll need to publish a SID every time you change the content. As it's not practical at all, there is an alternative for making the process more dynamic. A peer can publish data in a long name called an IPNS, uh, the IPNS string will never change. It's tied to a private key. But you can associate a SID to it and update the value when you want and tell other, other peers the value changed. It's called publishing. The IPNS notation is used and looks like a slash IPNS slash and then a big, I'm going to guess, 64 character string. Uh, you can then access an IPNS content with uh, public gateways with a different notation. And then they share the notation for... Um, 
two different gateways. IPFS link will always return the same content because it's a defined hash to a specific resource. The IPNS link can be updated to have a newer SID over time, allowing people to bootmark the location and browse it for later updates. Uh, and so Selene continues for how to use a public gateway. And then they go into how to install Node, which I think is the IPFS um, gateway uh, on OpenBSD. Um, and so some considerations when using your own nodes, first be aware that there is no real bandwidth control mechanism and that IPFS is known to create too many connections that small routers can't handle. On OpenBSD, it's possible to mitigate this behavior using queuing. It's also, it's possible to use a low power profile that will be less demanding on the network and resources, but be aware this will degrade IPFS performance. I found that after a few hours of bootstrapping and reaching many peers, the bandwidth usage becomes less significant but it may be an issue for DSL connections like mine. When you create your own node, you can use its own gateway or the command line client. When you request a data that doesn't belong to your node, it will be downloaded from known peers able to distribute the blocks. And then you will keep it in your cache until your cache can reaches its defined limit and the garbage collector comes to make room. And you know all the children are scared of the garbage collector coming. Uh, this means you get content when you get content, you'll also start distributing it, but nobody will use your node for content you never fetched first. This means that people are gonna, that you are becoming a helping distribute the content further on, so it's more redundant, but you're not just getting content you don't know exists added to your computer all the time. Um, when you have data, you can pin it, so it will never be removed from the cache. And if you pin a directory SID, the content will be downloaded, so you'll have a whole mirror of it. When you add, data to your node is automatically pinned by default. So your own data stays forever. Uh, default port is 4001. Uh, the web GUI is available localhost 5001. And so then continues with how to install uh, node. Um, and on OpenBSD, this is package add go IPFS. Um, they show the commands for configuring it a bit. And they say you can change the profile to low power with ENV IPFS path go IPFS, IPFS config profile, apply low power, which sounds really sci-fi like you're powering on a spaceship. Uh, you can also list profiles with the IPFS command. I recommend using queues in PF to limit the bandwidth usage for the DSL connection that she has. They She set a maximum of 450K and it doesn't disrupt her network anymore. I explained how to proceed with queuing and limitations in a previous article. Um, yeah, and so there's slightly more. There's uh, an OpenBSD experiment, which has just caught my eye. Uh, to make all this really useful, I started an experiment distributing OpenBSD AMD64 current and 6.9, both with sets and packages over IPFS. Basically, I have a server making uh, rsync of both sets once a day. We'll add them to the local IPFS node, get the SID of the top directory, and then publish the SID under an IPNS. Note that I have to create an index.html file in the packages sets because IPFS doesn't handle directory listing very well. The following examples will have to be changed if you don't use a local gateway. Replace localhost with replace localhost 8080 by your favorite IPFS gateway, and you can upgrade your packages with this command. You can switch the latest snapshot with the next command. And that is a really cool way to be distributing OpenBSD using uh, something other than just straight HTTP. So did she write all of that herself or was that an OpenBSD subproject or? 
Uh, I think these are examples of using the IPFS tools. Um, ah, okay. So IPFS Go is in their, their ports tree. Um, she also includes an example of running this on NixOS, um, which I, I, is a thing. I've never looked into NixOS. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, she also includes an, uh, an example of using DNS to um, putting text records into DNS so that there is a, an association between uh, a DNS entry and an IPFS name, which is really cool as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's always nice to have these uh, one-page descriptions so that people can uh, start right away and get something done. And try it out. Very nicely. So, and now we have the namesake article for this episode. Running online conferences by no one else than Mr. Conference Organizer Dan Langill. Uh, so he writes on his uh, other diary, uh, tips for running an online conference. Uh, so this post uh, was composed in June 2020 uh, to kind of, um, you know, collect his experiences uh, about online conferences and what needs to be there and what kind of uh, things people should consider when they uh, want to run such a thing. Uh, Dan writes, um, I think I got started running conferences in 2002 when I helped with Open Source Weekend 2003. Oh, wow, that's been a while, way before my time. The next year, I started BSD Can. Three years later, PGCon starts. All up, uh, I think I've run at least 32 conferences. Wow. Two of which have been online, BSD Can 2020 and PGCon 2020. This article was planned before the conferences were held. There have been requests to share what we did, why and how it went. This is still the first draft. For the most part, it's a brain dump of everything I can remember. In general, I will refer to BSD Can, but unless otherwise noted, such references can also be applied or uh, are valid for PGCon. So about the conferences, uh, I think that's fairly straightforward. People in this space know what this is. Um, so there's anything yeah so they usually are in place but now it's uh, online uh, although i hear that they are planning uh, 2022 to be an in present bsd can although this is still speculative but at least planning for it uh, gives us hope okay so zoom uh, there's a section about that we used zoom but nobody needed to have a zoom client to attend the conference we wanted to be sure of that not everyone wants to use zoom and being able to view the talks via our standard web browser was important to us and to the attendees for the q a session some speakers dialed into the session using their phones even that is an option a zoom client was required to interact with some sessions but the q a section via irc was available, so those happened after the talk. Uh, most open source users and developers are familiar with IRC, they are, um, uh, and there are many IRC clients available. Use Zoom for the live sessions with Q&A for the speaker to respond. This was live streamed to a scale engine who broadcasted it for us. Thank you. It was also used for tutorials run by the speakers. They wanted this uh, to be live. Three live tutorials were held. Uh, and they're easier than 35 live talks, yeah, <laughs> in comparison. And Zoom was also used for closing and opening sessions. Yeah, these are usually the best parts of, well, one of the best parts. <laughs> if it's just opening and closing sessions, that would be an interesting conference. Um, but yeah, those are the, really the, the good start and the, the great uh, ending. Um, but you have to be there uh, to, to know what I mean. Uh, well, so what we did, we asked the speakers to pre-record their talks. This reduces the technical issues you need to solve on the day. We recommended the speakers record using OBS project to uh, record. Uh, our speakers recording a talk might be useful for your speakers, so they have prepared some you know, tips and tricks. Attendees watched free of charge without registration, so I guess this 
opened the conferences uh, to even more people. Nearly all of the previously offered sponsorship benefits disappear online. Many uh, of the sponsored links remained. Everything else vanished. T-shirts were not printed. Toady bags were not distributed. Yeah, well, that's the reason why you have to go to uh, in-present conference when they happen again. We tried to retain the same schedule as previous years. Opening sessions start at the usual time locally. Three concurrent sessions and closing sessions. They chose local time, so it was easier for them. Yeah, the organizers should not be in <laughs> jet lag mode or in time delays when they run the show. Somehow it is going uh, to be inconvenient uh, no matter what we did. So yeah, there's always another time zone that you just can't uh, match. So we decided to make it easier for us having the conference during our working hours. Um, yep, all recordings will be uploaded and made freely available later. The only thing non-attendees miss out on is submitting questions. Uh, we used Scale Engine to broadcast the recordings. They were able to encode all the speakers' recordings into various formats and resolutions and create a schedule and broadcast started on time. Q&A session we ran were optional for the speakers because it may not be a good time for them locally, um, but they had volunteers collect the questions so that the speaker isn't distracted and put them into an online repository for the speakers to read. And then questions were submitted over the IRC channel, one for each of the three concurrent sessions. Sometimes the speakers were online and monitored the IRC channel. This made the question collect repos superfluous, but they did that anyway. So then speakers would join a dedicated Q&A Zoom meeting. Uh, they had one for each concurrent session. Uh, they let them know how this would proceed and what to expect. Then emailed them ahead of time and provided practice sessions so they would test their Zoom client Yeah, for any kind of uh, hiccups. Speakers do not need a Zoom client and they could dial in via phone if they had uh, the preference for that or something else uh, crashed and burned. The Q&A session was recorded and will be appended to the recording. And a scale engine solution allows for layers of priority of channels and they choose this in order of importance. First, the broadcast recording, then second, the Q&A session, and third, the sponsor video. And if a broadcast started, it would play over top of any of the other two and when they, the broadcast ended, you would see a short video of the sponsor logos, thanks to the sponsors. Uh, and if the Q&A session ran over time, the next talk would start. However, the Q&A session could continue to be recorded by Scale Engine for later use. Then there's a section about uh, free. I mean, BSD Can is already well affordable to, uh, to other conferences that I have attended that were super expensive. So BSD Can is really a good... Um, conference for your money and you really wonder how they put it together but it's just it's just great um so they decided not to charge because of the complexity involved ticketing and then providing access and we might charge in 2021 but that is open to change so 2021 didn't happen but we'll see 2021 at uh, 2022 maybe in presence hope for the best we could afford not to change uh, not to charge because they had sponsors yeah and Still, that's already a big shout out to the sponsors who still sponsored uh, during the pandemic. Um, that's huge when other conferences just couldn't make that. Uh, they did not have to live off the conference proceeds. This might differ for you if conferences are your livelihood. Yeah. Uh, and their major expenses, the catering, the travel, the accommodation, the venue, the t-shirts and the toady bags were gone and vanished completely. So that already reduced the costs uh, substantially, I would imagine, yeah. Um, they had plans on how to charge. People would have paid. The charge would have been in the $5 to $25 range, uh, but they were not worried about people sharing tickets. It might happen, no big deal. Yeah, we trust people not to abuse the service. Excellent. That That is that is also, after 23 conferences you organized, Dan, you, you still are um, 
<laughs> finding that people are good. Thir- uh, 32, Benedict. 32. Mm. Da- oh, da- 32, sorry. Da- Dan- Dan's allowed to retire from conference running if he wants. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's done his time. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's Dan. It's just uh, the way he does things and it's good. So what can sponsors get? Uh, the privacy policy does not permit uh, them to provide sponsors with attendee details and even if it did uh, we did not require registration so you have no way of knowing who they are who they are uh, targeting so it's everyone out there potentially in our case we created a few IRC channels specific to responses and drove users there okay that's good so they can uh, talk to them uh, both ways of course things to be aware of don't post meetings to Twitter bots will attend things will go very badly yeah and they post stuff in the chat that uh, it's just advertising and spam. Mm. Let speakers cancel without penalty. Recording is different. Things go wrong. There's a pandemic. The speaker and the family always talk priority over the conference. I, uh, and, yeah. I, I was a speaker that canceled for this conference, actually. Um, you had to? Yeah, I couldn't figure out how to make my workshop run. Um, oh. uh, it was very difficult to get a hardware hacking workshop where you get hands-on experience working with hardware. Very difficult to do that yeah. remotely. That's remote hands coordinating. <laughs> it, was, it, it was it was just, just not possible. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, that was really nice about it. It was really good. But you can just uh, put it there next time because people haven't seen it yet. When it happens again in place, you can still put it out of the hat and <laughs> then uh, give it and held it there. I'm sure I'll have something new by 2022. Uh, even better. Yeah? So it's not a complete waste of time. Um, yeah, it's just a conference. If they cancel, thank them and wish them well. Yeah, that's uh, given the circumstances and the best thing you can do. So yeah, um, read the rest of the article. It's interesting for people who are uh, running these or want to run one of this also um, to kind of see what's involved and, you know, that you need hopefully a couple of helping hands to not run the show alone. Yeah, and and it's always great seeing these articles. If you've ever run a conference, you should write up something like this. Um, I was looking up right now. So Lee Wen did a talk at BSD Can in 2018. Um bootstrapping a bsd conference where he talked about bringing up uh the taiwan asia bsd con oh yeah and, and that actually really helped me run conferences because they talked about how to manage um money from sponsors and tickets and where fixed costs and variable costs should be dealt with which is really in the weeds about conference organization but it was really nice to see that this isn't hard like you can just have some common sense about it and it's, it's yeah. always great and i really enjoyed this article by dan uh, next up in the news we have an a blog post from uh, Joshua Stein, uh, JCS, talking about uh, his new fanless OpenBSD desktop. Uh, and JCS writes, after the disappointment of my X1 Nano and learning that all future Intel Evo branded laptops would lack S3 suspend, I started thinking about returning to my M1 MacBook full-time or building an OpenBSD desktop. I chose the latter, building my first desktop machine in many years. Uh, and he's got quite a big uh, blog post here with eight different parts to it. And so we'll sort of summarize a bit. Uh, he says, I briefly considered an ARM64 CPU and motherboard, but the hardware support of, AM- of OpenBSD ARM64 is not yet reliable enough for my daily use. And the lead time for ordering a Honeycomb LX2 was many weeks out. I decided to go with an AMD64 system since OpenBSD AMD64 is very mature and I know it quite well. Beyond that, my only requirements for new desktop were excellent OpenBSD support, fanless with no coil wine, a high resolution small monitor, 
Uh, Iverson is reading Fabian Sanglard's write-up about building a system with a Streamcom DB4 case. I knew I wanted that case in particular since it looked beautiful and could passively cool a 65-watt processor. After the case, the next component I chose was the monitor. In retrospect, this would make everything else more complicated, but I'm pretty picky about the screens and the laptops that I buy, so I wanted to make sure my desktop display was of high quality. Uh, I was bitten by this when I got a ThinkPad last time because I forgot not everyone has Apple's attention to screens, and the ThinkPad monitors really get a really low end when they're low end. Uh, so JTS says, I've always chosen smaller, uh, less than 14-inch laptop screens since I find too much horizontal space distracting. I prefer to separate tasks with virtual desktops rather than have everything on one giant screen. I wanted a smaller monitor that I could have closer to me, lower on my desk and angled slightly upward like a laptop screen. In addition to good image reproduction, I needed a monitor with a high resolution that could display Firefox in 1.5 or 2.5x mode. Uh, while not an absolute requirement, integrated speakers would be a nice option. After some, after some research, he chose the LG Ultrafine 21.5-inch IPS LED monitor. Uh, and if you click through to the show notes and you look at the, the blog post and the pictures, the monitor is is really weird. It's almost just like a laptop screen um, with the size mm -hmm. of it. Uh, unfortunately, it's no longer produced, but there's a 24-inch version um, with a smaller resolution and a 5K version that requires Thunderbolt. In fact, he found a 21-inch version on eBay. It was good condition. And he's put the monitor onto an arm, and so it's quite a, a low setup. I know we've got lots of comments on Hacker News. Uh, and JTS goes into uh, configuring the, the monitor and finding PCI devices and passing through the, the built-in USB hub. Um, he then goes on to talk about the particular case he chose for the setup. I already had my heart set on the Streamcom DB4 fanless case, though I waffled a bit between black and titanium colors before choosing black. The case came as is, can dissipate enough heat for a 65 watt processor, though there is a separate heat pipe add-on that can support up to 110 watts. He purchased a Streamcom uh, STZF240 Zero Flex 240 watt power supply because it is also fanless. Um, the previous Nano PSU he used before, he could hear the coil wine, coil wine from, and so didn't want to go that route. He didn't quite appreciate how large and heavy the DB4 case was until it arrived. I think a lot of us get bitten by that. Uh, fully assembled with everything in it, it weighs over 20 pounds, which I'm going to say is nine kilos, uh, and has a footprint of 10 inches by 10 inches by 11 inches. Um, 25 centimeters square by 27 centimeters. Yeah, I'm going to guess. Uh, the main bulk of the case is held uh, up by uh, five centimeter of the surface by two large feet, which only leaves uh, two inches between the motherboard and the table. This makes it difficult to plug in certain cables like a DisplayPort cable. Um, that is a really funny consideration that I think a lot of people wouldn't have without a review. Um, since I've been pretty happy with Intel, pretty unhappy with Intel products lately, I decided to go with an AMD processor. I've never had one before, so I wasn't very familiar with the lineup, but I wanted one with integrated graphics to avoid buying an external GPU since I wouldn't have room for a DisplayPort USB-C card and because most of the external GPUs put out a ton of heat and or have fans. I needed a processor with a TDP of 65 watts or less to stay within the Streamcom's case limits. He decided on a AMD Ryzen 7 Pro 4750G, a 4 gigahertz 8-core processor with integrated Radeon graphics. Uh, technically, the CPU was not supposed to be sold to end users, but it's on Amazon, which was good enough for him. 
which okay. <laughs> so it's end users really <laughs> <laughs> he includes the uh, the d message lines for the for the processor and it, it, it looks great uh, once i had the cpu picked out i looked for a motherboard i've been out of the custom pc game for many years but i was disappointed to see how every non-server motherboard seems to be targeted towards gamers with all kinds of stupid flashing leds and aggressive branding yeah i understand this i would prefer some sort of warm white leds and a cup of tea uh, beyond supporting the AM4 socket at Ryzen 4750G, my requirements for the motherboard were to have it ha- for it to have Intel Gigabit Ethernet for the best OpenBSD support, and at least one M2 socket for an NVMe drive, and have both HDMI and DisplayPort. Eventually settled on the Asus ROG, which I think is Republic of Gamers Strix X57i. Uh, with the stupid LEDs, RGB LEDs that can be turned off uh, in the firmware by setting it to stealth mode. Um, he then goes into the the, the RAM, the, the keyboard and mouse. Uh, I'm sure some people would really like to pick out the keyboard. Oh, I know somebody bought this keyboard the other day. The keyboard's got a cool jog wheel on the top right, and I don't know what it's for. Um, and he talks about his mouse and then plugging in the sensors and connecting everything up. And the last part, of course, is OpenBSD. Of course, my system wouldn't be usable to me if it couldn't run OpenBSD. When I first booted OpenBSD on the system, once the AMD GPU KMS driver took over from the EFI frame buffer, the system would hang, uh, even with a low-resolution HDMI monitor connected. After playing with random BIOS options, I discovered that the BIOS's CSM needs to be enabled for some reason, even though the system still boots via EFI, instead of booting through legacy CSM. Having this enabled does some magic, that makes the, the video work. Um, even when this would boot, the ultra fine display would go blank, though the backlight was still on. Once the AMD GPU driver took over, uh, SSH'd in and did an X in it and was able to change the resolution from uh, 4960 by 2304 at 60 hertz to 4960 by 2304 at 48 hertz. I'm not sure if this is a bandwidth issue somewhere between the GPU, the display port, the cable, or something else. But to work around this, I added a quirk to the monitor, I added a quirk to prefer the 4960 resolution in the monitor's EID, which is a pretty cool thing you couldn't do in a non-open source operating system. Um, and the Ultrafine has a USB head device to control its brightness, and so he wrote a driver for it, because that is the sort of thing that JCS would do, because he's awesome like that. Um, <laughs> it includes, uh, I just at the end, which is worth looking at, is he has a, a frame from a, FLIR, FLIR thermal camera uh, pointing at the the black cube, which is this uh, uh, this case, and he shows the outside of the case is at forty five point one degrees. Uh, the internal temperature from the sensor framework is reading fifty four point two five. While he's doing a make dash J eight build of the system, maxing out all the cores. Yeah, that really heats it up. Hey, summertime! <laughs> yeah, Excellent. that's awesome. I need I need one of these cameras just to point at random computers. Yeah, those you you will spend the rest of your life just doing that to just measure temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that's a nice write up to not just the, about the software, also the hardware for people who are always in the market uh, to improve their setup. This is a good uh, starting point. Yeah, and if you have a if you have a desktop you've built on another BSD, I find these articles are really good for getting people involved in the project because yeah, they it, it really shows that yeah, I can run my stuff on it. It's, it's fine. I'm happy with this. Um, and even if it's going to be different from what everyone else does, because you have your own quirks uh, as we all do, it's still really cool to see. Yeah, and uh, it's not just the old hardware that that 
it works on. It's mostly yeah up to the the latest uh, releases. Sometimes drivers may be an issue, but it's it's not that you have to wait a whole like CPU generation to get stuff working. No, no, it's it's quite uh, up to up to snuff. Uh, let's go into our feedback and questions. But before we do that, we should mention our sponsor for this week, Tarsnap, the online backups for the truly paranoid. For the people who are never uh, had an issue losing their data, this might be, why would I have to do this? No, this is probably happening to you sooner than later. And why not make backups while you still can? So Tarsnap is a solution from Colin Percival, who wrote his own uh, backup service. And you basically uh, download the client and it, uh, you point it at the data uh, that you want to back up. And it has a tar command line, very similar to the original tar command, but with tarsnap specific parts. And then it takes the data you point at that you want to back up and figures out, ah, what are the unique blocks in there? What can I do with the duplication and compression? And then it figures out, okay, I can encode this to a certain number of uh, bits and bytes down to a certain uh, bit. And then it asks you to create a personal key that it uh, encrypts your data with. And only then the data leaves your uh, disk or your device uh, encrypted and only encrypted. And then it's stored in Amazon's cloud where the Tarsnap servers are residing until the fateful day that you need your data back. And as long as you hold their personal key, then you are able to download it again and uh, encrypted that's the important part you could probably download it but not uh, encrypted again or unencrypted so here you get your files back in an encrypted manner and everyone else who doesn't have the key can not make heads and tails of what the data is inside and don't even know what uh, it might contain so that uh, tarstep is giving you and the next time you do a backup it only transfers the deltas anything that has changed and with some clever tricks uh colin has made to figure out only the blocks that have changed and only the special parts that have changed in like a big uh, like text document. And only those parts are then sent over as a delta. So this is what Tarsnap gives you. It has a very competitive pricing model. Uh, you can start charging up with uh, like $10. And depending on how much data you store, uh, you will probably go <laughs> with it for a long time until you realize, hey, this is, this is actually quite good for a $10 initial uh, charging up my account. And um, yeah, so you get you never get a surprise bill, as Alan always mentions. Uh, you always know what you are um, paying for. Check out Tarsnap. There are plenty of clients available for various operating systems, BSD, Linux, Mac OS, uh, Windows subsystem, or subsystem for Windows. Um, <laughs> never used those, but it's available. You can look at the source code. That's the truly paranoid part. If you find something in there, Alan has a little bounty out there for anything from typos to really... Um, architectural problems you might encounter but there are not because a lot of people looked at them already and uh, yeah figure out the documentation on the website it's quite easy and walks you through making backups uh, sooner rather than later because it could be uh, any second that counts all right time for our feedback and questions people have been sending us feedback uh, and that's good because then uh, we can read it here with the first one uh, from Bruce about upgrading. So let's look at that. Okay, yeah. So Bruce writes, I was trying to go from FreeBSD 11.4 release to 12.2 release. 
I see that both are still supported as tier one with AMD 64, so I thought it would be okay. I have already upgraded other servers to 12.2 from 11.4 a month ago, so okay. Uh, anyway, I kept getting an error and did not know what else to try. Can I W get the files? I'm able to ping update.forward.previously.org just fine. These are all AMD 64 VMs. Okay, so did he provide some extra stuff? Ah, yeah. Uh, source component not installed, skipped. This may be because operating from this platform or release ah, is unsupported by FreeBSD update. Ah, I, I think uh, it's about the sources missing. Uh, only platforms with tier one support can be upgraded. Yeah, that's the info. If unsupported, FreeBSD must be upgraded by source. Yeah, so he gets this when running FreeBSD update fetch. And yeah, can't com uh, continue from there. I, I get this ever when I run FreeBSD update. Um, but it doesn't not update because of it, so I'm not really sure what's happening. Oh, it's because he's using the it's the dash s flag. Oh, so you're targeting it at a oh, yeah, so targeting at a specific update server. So that's usually not needed because it figures out the closest one next to you with a GeoDNS and uh, picks the one. So maybe you need to retry it a couple yeah. of times. Well, he says, I get the same the error if I try FreeBSD update fetch or do not use dash S. Um, ah. I wonder, I don't understand. I mean, is it erroring out? So if you don't have the source component installed, that's fine because you don't need that to update. Um, yeah, just in case you can download the sources, of course, to use a, a flash source um, from Git nowadays. Uh, but usually it doesn't need those. To, to do the upgrade. Uh, so maybe there's something changed in the system and it cannot figure out the actual components. So it's not a real release anymore. It's something has changed in there. Uh, isn't yeah. there a way to figure out the deltas um, between the current system and the remote system you want to update to? Isn't there some kind of um, like IDS tool or comparison built in to see what kind of things has changed or where it's stumbling upon? I think I've seen problems like this on the FreeBSD forums, and they're in the solved category. So um, they, you could go there uh, to forums.freebsd.org. There's um, people there who have may ex maybe experienced this before and have a solution. Um, if FreeBSD update doesn't work and you're not um, afraid to do the source upgrade, that's also an option if this won't work the FreeBSD update way. Uh, I know we've had the issue before where... Um... We've not had keys valid for updates. I wonder maybe if they're just hitting this temporarily while there's a gap. Uh, that could be. There's also um, Colin Percival's AWS FreeBSD update servers that he put up specifically to test a couple things, and I still use them. So <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think I'd recommend just Bruce ask in the forums. Um, and yeah, maybe provide a bit more context. Uh, yeah, and that's then, the entire output. Yeah, I think that helps you. Could just be that the. The sit that FreeBSD update can't detect what the system is. Alan might know. There's plenty of um, things he has tried this way, um, and or has seen. Uh, but um, yeah, I think the forums are your best uh, bet with uh, getting an answer. Okay, but thanks uh, for uh, letting us know, and maybe someone else knows, and we can link you up there. If you have experienced things like that, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Some pointers, some guidance, and maybe then we can help. Uh, Bruce here. Okay, the next piece of feedback we have is from Chris, uh, and they're providing a, a follow-up on previous feedback they provided. Uh, hi, Alan Benedict et al. 
It's a good way to name us. Uh, I thought I would follow up on my mysterious SMB connectivity issue. Now, the mysterious SMB connectivity issue is a Michael W. Lucas book just waiting to be written. Um, <laughs> I thought I would follow up on my mysterious SMB connectivity issue that would randomly come and go. It seems it wasn't an issue with macOS or TrueNAS. It was a setting on my Express VPN software. Whenever I had stop all internet traffic if VPN disconnects selected, it would interfere with my LAN traffic, even though I had the option selected to allow access to devices on the local network. I reported to tech support, and they were they were the ones that had me uncheck these options. Now these options are deselected, my connection works 100% of the time, and traffic is noticeably faster. Keep up the great work, guys. Love your show. Chris. Thanks, Chris. Do Excellent. you know when this question was, Benedict? I don't think it was a show uh, I was on. It's been a while, but I remember it. Um, and it's nice that you provided a follow-up so people with the same problem or similar ones can uh, try this out. And it's good to know that people, you know, tried up our solutions or suggestions. And even if they come up with their own solutions by now, it's uh, it's good to hear from them again. So, yeah, thanks for the update, Chris. Uh, yeah, then next is Demilith with KTLS question. Uh, oh, it's directly to Tom, so I'll read it to you. Tom, I have one regarding KTLS and its real-world usability for end users. Uh, is it only useful for people with 100 gigabit NICs for like $1,000 plus? Uh, is there a reason why it's still not enabled by default, at least OpenSSL side and base system where without uh, or with OpenSSL underscore KTLS equals one is required in source.conf? Is it even worth playing with for slower 10 gig networks? Does it affect only throughput or also latency? I did uh, Nginx build with that feature enabled, but it's hard to find any info about how to even configure that, except obvious enabling send file and picking supported ciphers. Uh, thanks, uh, Demilith. Um, it's, it's hard to say if KTLS will be useful for you in use cases like this. Um, it does just depend what your workload is and it depends where you're constrained. Uh, it's being developed now um, for 100 plus gigabit server scenarios. So um, it's being developed you know, by, by Netflix and they're pushing one 200 plus gigabits a second of, of traffic using uh, SendFile KTLS. And so that is primarily what it was designed for. And so it might not have a benefit on slower networks. It might not have a benefit on a 10 gig network. Uh, and it might have a benefit on your 10 gig network, but you never get the benefit because you're not hitting the things it improves. And so th this can be a possibility. The thing is that the technologies trickle down. We get m more access to them over time. And so the KTLS being there right now is a, is a benefit for large traffic scenarios, but it's I think it's entirely feasible to expect offload like this to appear in cheaper network cards. And so you might get power savings in slower network environments in the future. Um, using it is probably a bit hard. I'm I'm actually really against off by default for things in FreeBSD because it leads to this situation you have right now where you don't know how to test this. Mm. Um, I don't know how we learn lessons from this because we we've, we've hit some other issues in the past where off by default has bitten us because it's uh, hurts stability. No one so it's a trade off. It. <laughs> it's a trade off between getting stuff in the tree to improve it and then it not being stable enough to turn on because it's not had enough testing. Uh, and people tend to land stuff and then. Uh, take a long holiday of a couple of years and it takes the next person to come through and finish it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's probably a good situation here. Um, and maybe it's worth a call to try and get better documentation for KTLS. I will say that NFS v4 supports uh, SSL and there's been KTLS work being done. And so 
if you need to encrypt your NFS, then there's a big benefit there for your NFS traffic. Uh, and the benefit might still only show up in terms of better CPU or power usage. Um, is that all of the questions? So many questions. It's really good. I think it's a good thing to follow up on. It's difficult to figure out how you can, as not a developer or somebody outside the project, ask the question, uh, why the hell is this not turned on? Without mm -hmm. sounding like... Um, while being as friendly as you intend. Uh, and I understand the frustration when it comes to uh, having to build a kernel to turn on rack and not understanding why it's not there by default. And the fact is that there's only, it's only so much money in the world and there's only so much time available. And so things land and they're as mature as the people building them uh, can, can get them to be. And hopefully KTLS will get an improvement soon because I think it is a big feature we have right now, which is a big benefit to FreeBSD. Mm. Uh, I don't have any concrete uh, help there, but... I think it will get there over time and there's always need for more hands. And if you can test this and say it works on all your setups, that's an extra thing to um, another feather in the cap of turning it on by default. Well, with Tom's article, you can now also measure properly and, you know, provide some own uh, measurements, right? You know how to do this now <laughs> <laughs> with our article earlier? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, Benedict. Yeah, you know, but that's the thing. So you need to... Figuring out how to turn this on is the first step, but uh, you might just want to look and you might see that it's got no benefit to your workload. Um, people, what happens, I think, is you hit bottlenecks and you're aware of them. And if you're not hitting a bottleneck, you're not aware of the infinite space of bottlenecks you have below you. You only hit the ones you hit. And if you're not hitting any, then you're fine. I mean, if the bottleneck is my clients only want packets at 100 kilobytes a second, KTLS is not, not necessarily going to be a big help unless you have a lot of clients. Right. Yeah, it depends on the uh, environment and what kind of uh, use case you have for it. But yeah, nothing stopping you from from trying it out. If it it's not too net Netflix specific, otherwise they wouldn't have released it into FreeBSD, right? No, so, there's definitely a benefit. Um, yeah. Maybe we need more network card support. Uh, and maybe the the the, the sort of uh, like that uh, the SMB size network cards that small businesses have are not hitting support yet because they don't need it and it's on mm -hmm. the bigger equipment yeah or the, the expensive network cards that support this will get cheaper over time and then everyone can benefit from that yeah <laughs> and they get second hand over time so everyone will benefit yeah exactly when they throw it out we can pick them up and <laughs> have fun with it <laughs> okay but yeah that's um i think all we have for you for today yeah uh, thank you for your questions. Uh, future questions should always be redirected to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Could also be, well, feedback. Um, ideas, topics we should cover, any any stories you found on the webs uh, or written yourself. Um, we, we take self, selfless shame, uh, shameless self-advertising this way um, and put it in episodes when we uh, figure it out it's good enough for the show. So thank you for listening. Um, anything else from you, Tom? No, thanks uh, for listening to the show. It's always great to hear uh, from our listeners. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the vibrant part of the show. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>